everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, which is a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them, Christian Napier. And today, I am thrilled to have our next guest on this podcast, Caroline Shaw. Now, this show has been very much about the stories of those who delivered the games, and the vast majority of us were the red shirts to use Star Trek parlance who worked down in the bowels of the ship, you know, doing our part to make sure the enterprise could serve its five-year mission to new worlds and whatever. But now we get to go to the bridge, so to speak, and uh, talk to a member of the C-suite. So Caroline, welcome aboard. How are you? I'm great. What a lovely introduction, but I have to say it was such a collaborative team and environment and every person played a critical role in the success of the 2002 games. I think you're right. And we all did our part. And, and um, even though, you know, for, for us people that were the red shirts down in the bowels of the ship, as I say, it didn't mean that we'd felt unimportant. I mean, mm-hmm. we felt like our job mattered and we did our job like it did matter. And so you did, we a, all it did. Was a, it was a joy. Yeah. It was a joy to work on those games. Where are you joining us from? I'm in beautiful Sonoma, California, wine country, just about an hour north of San Francisco. Oh, that's fantastic. What are you doing up there besides living in one of the most beautiful places on the planet? It's true. Um, I recently left Jackson Family Wines, which is a global wine company based here in Sonoma, to lead a startup, actually, for social good. I mean, that's what we do in the Bay Area, right? We do startups. This one is really focused in on affordable housing, which is a very critical need in California in general, but particularly in Northern California, following the wildfires we'd had both in 2017 and again in 2019. This is so amazing. I'm so glad to hear about that. It's funny, my sister lives in uh, Palo Alto mm-hmm. and and affordable housing is crazy. Oh. I'm originally from the Bay Area. I'm originally from Burlingame. And so you know. I still love the I still love the Bay Area. Um, how specifically is the startup? You know, I'm not here to talk about the startup necessarily, but I'm curious <laughs> about this. You know, how specifically is 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 the work that you're doing contributing to to more affordable housing there in Northern California? Well, our team is focused specifically on accessory dwelling units. So we feel we felt the best way to increase the housing stock as quickly as possible after the fires was to create communities of accessory dwelling units. We opened two. We housed about 20 fire survivors within a year of the fires through donations. And um, currently we're looking at expanding that with people in people's backyards, so granny units, if you will, because we feel that's the fastest way to build up the housing stock here in Sonoma County at affordable rate. Our housing that we work through is below market, which believe it or not, sits about Fifteen hundred dollars for a one or two bedroom in Santa Rosa, California. Yeah, that's that's um that's incredible. That's incredible. I'm fortunate. I'm at a point in my life where I can do, do some good back into the community. And the other thing I have to say is I'm a marathon runner post Olympic Games, and I do a lot of training and a lot of long runs. And I have so enjoyed reflecting on all your podcasts. I've downloaded them all and I feel like I'm having a conversation with Karen Koppel or Derek Hughes. It's just been such a wonderful, wonderful joy to listen to the to the various memories of the 2002 games. Well, I really appreciate that, Caroline. It's been a joy for me to do all these podcasts. Of course, it's been a lot of work, but it's been a huge amount of fun. And I really appreciate you carving time out of your schedule to, to come here and, uh, take that little stroll down memory lane, as we say. 
And I look forward now to diving into the stories. The first story that I typically ask people is how how you ended up in uh, Salt Lake City and working for the Salt Lake 2002 Organizing Committee. Well, it's it like all of us, it was a journey. I have a background in international relations. I grew up overseas. My dad was a military attache, but I've also had a long passion for winter sports. So prior to the games, I was ski bum slash ski industry, working in the Utah ski industry quite frankly. And uh, when the 2002 games were awarded, I wasn't quite there yet. But um, right around the time that Mitt Romney came on board, I had applied for a position in the marketing and communications team, which is what I was doing in the Utah ski industry and uh, was very, very fortunate to uh, be hired at that time. And your role then was? Yeah, I think I started as a director of communications and uh, working under Shelly Thomas. And at some point, she left, and I remember Mitt pulling me into his office with Ed Einan and saying, we're going to make you the chief communications officer. And I was pretty young at the time, but he had a lot of confidence in me. And as I said repeatedly, it was a collaborative effort. So I grew and learned from Frazier and from Mitt and from all the wonderful people around me in the games. Why don't you describe for us what a chief communications officer actually does? I mean... Oftentimes we think of someone being the spokesperson for the games, but there's much more to it than that. Um, So maybe you can just give us a a little communications 101. Yeah. So we were in charge, obviously, of um, external and internal communications. That's what a chief communications officer does. The creating and crafting the message to all the key stakeholders. And as you can imagine with the games, there's a lot of key stakeholders. You're in your intel audiences, your employees, the the government, I'd say the people of Utah were an incredibly important shareholder and uh, legislators, the government back in DC after 9-11, it played an even larger role. Um, Being the spokesperson and strategist to Mitt Romney, I think the key piece was really rebuilding our brand and rebuilding the trust after the um, bid scandal, the bribery scandal. And again, after 9-11, those were the two reputation building moments. And that really meant being open, being transparent, making MIT available out in the public domain with Ask MIT and regular press conferences and town hall meetings to really open up the games, including our board of directors meetings. So jack of all trades when it came to telling the story of the games, quite frankly. yeah, I think that's what a communications professional does, you know, build the brand and, and in our case, renew the trust in the games. Oh, that's all. Just not, not too much. <laughs> Fortunately, we had Mitt and Frazier at the top, so they were outstanding leaders and spokespeople. I was blessed. And uh, I think one of the things I did early on that made it so successful was to develop a deep, uh, important relationship with the local newspapers, Lisa Riley Roach at the Desert News and Mike Gorell at the Salt Lake Tribune. Boy, those are names I haven't mentioned in probably 20 years. But often when the national media comes in uh, at sporting events, as you know, they look and see what the local reporters, the beat reporters have been doing. And those strong relationships, as well as a handful of key reporters that we maintain strong relationships throughout. Um, So I had five or six media uh, members of the media who I was routinely calling and engaging with um, on almost a daily basis. 
Well, my sister would be very happy to hear that. She's now the editor of the Tribune. So shout out to the Trib and the Desert News. Shout out to the local reporters because they are important. And they uh, are. Your local news is very important. Yeah, it's a challenge these days uh, with the business models all changing and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the difficulty in raising the the revenues necessary to support local reporting. It's it's hard. So it's so thank you for saying something about the importance of uh, the local reporters. I want to ask you about this, this idea that you, you came in and you had to rebuild a brand, the Salt Lake 2002 games. I mean, the Olympic brand globally, very, very strong, but Salt Lake was damaged as a result of the IOC scandal. And, and so you had to do a lot of work there. Why don't you take us through just what that entailed? It entailed um, changing the mindset of the way that the organizing committee and the Olympic committee operated to a certain extent. And I mentioned it briefly before it in, it was transparency to really show trust in who the people were behind the game. So as I mentioned, we, we opened up our board of directors meetings. We had routine press briefings so people could answer us. Mitt did a monthly ask Mitt Q and a on KSL radio, as a matter of fact, um, to let, people call in and ask any questions they wanted to have about the games. We really, no holds bar. We opened ourselves up to the good and the bad of what people had to, were wondering and questioning about the games. And I think the biggest thing we did um, was to put the focus back on the athletes. I think so much of that prior, uh, prior to Mitt's arrival had been about getting the games and, and no disrespect to anyone involved prior to that, but it was about the men in suits versus the athletes. And anyone who came to the 2002 games remembers quite vividly all the athletes, um, the murals all over downtown. So we took it off the men in suits and really focused on the athlete. And that was very, very strategic and transformative. It's so interesting you see that. At the same time, the men in suits, as you mentioned, were critical, Mitt and Frazier. And, and you mentioned that they were great to work with. I'm wondering... From your perspective, what was it about Mitt? What was it about Frazier that helped them propel the games really beyond many people's expectations? They are generous and kind human beings who truly do believe in the the basic belief of what the Olympics represent in terms of the best of the human spirit. And uh, while we certainly had our ups and downs, they understood the importance of being open and transparent in the things that we did. That was very unusual. The IOC was very much a closed organization prior to this and wanted to showcase the very best of Utah. They also understood the importance of the local community. We would not have been successful without the incredible amount of volunteers who participated in those games. But at the core of it, in short, you know, charismatic, great leaders were uh, interacted with the people. They didn't stay on any, I mean, I remember we were at the Wells Fargo building. They didn't stay up in their offices. They got out and were amongst the people. Why don't you tell us about your team, Caroline? Um, because as the chief communications officer, it's not just you. It's not like a, a one-person show, right? I mean, you're supported by by a group of people. How did you construct the team and how did they end up delivering for you? Christian, there were a lot of very capable people pulling together to put on these games. It was, we were all so highly motivated to work together. And a lot of that did come from Mitt and Frazier. 
but it was also this, you know, shared passion for showcasing the best of the, of the Olympics. And, um, wow, the comms team, we were working night and day to tell that story of the people behind the games. And so I can, you know, Nancy Mulmer and Mark Walker, Shannon MacArthur, they were all working side by side with me. We also had an incredible support from Culture Associates. That was the um, outside agency that supported us with Lindsay Stevenson and Jamie Rupert and, of course, uh, Steve. And, um, and then the operations group was such an important piece, Beth White and uh, her team. And then probably last but not least was, of course, the USOC. They're very much a part of our, with um, Linda Lucchetti and Frank Zane. And as I mentioned to you, I am in wine country right now. And I would be remiss if I didn't talk to you about the wine club that happened after the games. And these are still some of my really close friends. And believe it or not, we have a virtual wine tasting scheduled for July 19th, where Cindy Gillespie and Brian Katz and Melissa Raymond and Michelle Bettine, people from the government and legal affairs team are all coming together in just a few weeks. And it's going to be done virtually, you say? Absolutely. We're all going to select our favorite bottle and explain why we're drinking that particular wine. And it stems from this wine group that was started, uh, actually led by Brian Katz, who's one of our lead attorneys at the time, and would be a good person for you to talk to. Well, I'd love to uh, talk to anybody that you recommend. I'm sure anybody that you would recommend would be amazing. So that would be awesome. I just have to ask one more question about the wine group. Um, In the past, before we had this COVID thing, did you meet in person to do this tasting? And was that always at the vineyard that you worked at? Uh, We did meet in person and this happened right after the game. So we started our meetings in Utah and then we would occasionally have them as celebratory moments when we would get together on anniversary dates for the Olympics. Um, And then they even came out twice to the vineyard where I work. So it was really just, as I said, good friendships were made everywhere throughout the games. Um, You have them, I have them, everyone you're speaking to have friendships that have lasted now 20 plus years. We, we, I think you can't miss, and, and you've heard this before and other, you can't miss the sight of putting on games six months after 9-11 and bringing them home to America. It was like a rising, uh, Phoenix rising to a certain extent. Everyone was going to do everything in their power, 110% to make sure the games were successful, to shine, you know, that that hometown feeling. I'm, I'm not from Utah, but my children were born in Salt Lake City. Um, and uh, it's uh, part of Utah will always be part of me because of that. Why don't you take us back to that time a lot of our guests of you know have looked at 9/11 as a very pivotal moment for them what was that morning like for you i mean things were happening very fast there there was some some chaos in the committee as to you know well what are we doing and uh, and then we get the message from mitt everybody go home so i know a few guests have been emotional and i'll try and refrain there too um because New York City is very special to me. I started my career at the United Nations and uh, got married in New York. And Mitt used to always joke with me. He's like, you're a different person in New York. You just pick up the pace and go. You know, I become a New Yorker in New York in the streets of Manhattan. And that's where I was on 9-11, actually. Um, 
we had planned to announce the torch relay on September 11th in New York City down at Battery Park with Lady Liberty as a perfect backdrop. You can imagine Mitt with the, the press uh, uh, stand up and Lady Liberty in the back as we announced who our torch bearers were gonna be and the route of the torch relay. But he was in Washington trying to get money along with Cindy Gillespie and got delayed. So we pushed the announcement to September 12th. What a blessing that is in retrospect. Um, but we were, the team was still there. I was there um, on my way actually down to Battery Park, which those of you who are not from Manhattan is right where the World Trade Center is. And uh, to sort of just review, have a meeting, look over the plans when uh, the towers tumbled and you know the traffic stopped and we didn't know what to do. It was a very scary moment for me personally. Okay. <laughs> couldn't reach my family and um, being, oh, excuse me, on the streets of Manhattan at that time was challenging. And I've seen uh, working at the United Nations, some pretty horrific things, uh, man's inhumanity to man, but seeing the devastation in your own country is, um, was life-changing. So, excuse me. Um, so Mitt being the leader that he is and the media, of course, being the media beast that they were, you know, phones were ringing, people, if you could even get through. It was such an uh, insane time in Manhattan. As I said, I tried to call my family repeatedly and could not get through because the lines were all busy. And uh, people were just trying to get out. We were just looking for safety at that point. So I did go back to the hotel. I did touch base with Mitt and Cindy, who were in D.C. Frazier was in Salt Lake. And um, I... I, you know, I didn't know what to do. It was a very scary, scary moment in my life. And uh, Mitt, again, the strength came through. He felt strongly, this wasn't the time to talk about whether or not the Olympic Games would go on or, uh, or not. This was a time to talk about unity. Um, so he said to me, and I remember it vividly as if it were yesterday, we're not talking about the Games. We're going to talk about the testimony of the courage of the human spirit. The Olympics are a symbol of peace. And we need them more now than uh, now more than ever. So that's what we did, uh, Christian. We 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 waited till we could fly again. We were all stuck in New York, and he was stuck in D.C. And um, eventually, at some point, he was able to arrange a private aircraft. And I remember meeting him and Cindy in Philadelphia, and going back to Salt Lake. And the first thing he did, because of who he is, along with Frazier was bring the team together in that open area by the Wells Fargo Center. I can't remember. It was a big open space and talk to people and reassure them that, in fact, at this point now, maybe a week later, the games would go on. But it was a very traumatic moment in my life for so many more people, of course, who, who lost loved ones that day. But it also, um, as we talk about the Salt Lake Games, it changed the torch relay. It changed our whole focus. We know, as you know, we made it a symbol of moving forward and had the pairing of people, people who inspired other people. And um, eventually did launch the torch relay and announced who the torturers will be. And a lot of it were people who had been touched by 9-11, people who carried the Olympic flame prior to the games were, um, had many had been touched by 9-11. I have to ask, how did you get out? And when were you finally able to make contact with your family? Um, 
several, several hours later, I was able to reach my husband and um, small children, babies at that time. And we were able to get in a taxi to leave Manhattan. And I'll never forget, as long as I live driving out of Manhattan, the traffic jam going over the George Washington Bridge and the, the, the flame, the plume of smoke, as far as you could see along the whole skyline of Manhattan, this it was horrible. It's horrible. Wow. Unimaginable. It's unimaginable. But like you said, like a phoenix rising from the ashes, the, the games, the games carried on. That again, I can't emphasize enough bringing the world together six months, just six months after 9-11, when we had athletes in Scandinavia, other places, they didn't want to go. Security was up in the issue. You know, at a certain point, people weren't even flying. But we, this team, all of us collectively brought the world together and celebrated one of the greatest games I think the world has seen since then. I don't know the future. I hope that the games can serve a similar role next year in Tokyo. I hope so We're too. going through the perfect storm of pandemic, economic collapse and social yeah. unrest. And as I, for my speaking for myself, my own family, uh, it's really the first thing that my children have really experienced. I mean, they were, too young really to remember 9-11 and they were still too young to really understand the impact of the financial crisis of 2008 but they're all in university or recently graduated from mm-hmm. university now and they're all feeling the impacts of this uh, uh in their lives and and it's hard for them and i hope that sport and the olympic games hope i you know fingers crossed they happen next year in tokyo uh i hope they can serve as a as a beacon of hope just like uh, salt lake 2002 did i hope from your mouth to uh, god's ears you mentioned at the outset how you turned the focus from the men in suits to the athletes <laughs> And there were some great stories wow. uh, during the games from the competitions and the athletes. I'm curious if there are any of those uh, stories that are kind of, you know, personal highlights for you. So many come to mind, of course. And as I mentioned, I was a huge winter sports junkie. But I too, when I told my husband I was going to go work for the Olympic Games, he, he said, you can be gone because we had one-year-olds at home. And he was like, you can be gone as much as you want. So long as I get a ticket to the um, medal rounds of both Olympic hockey games. So I, I, that was a promise I kept to my husband and those games while the U S United States came in silver in both the men's and the women's hockey games. Um, they were just tremendous games to watch. And Mikey Rosioni, who of course lit the Olympic flame, was sitting near us in the Olympic box. And that was, he's been a lifelong hero of my husband. So that was a very, very special treat. You know, you could talk about Apollo Ono, you could talk about Derek Parra, um, but the one that really resonates me, the story, and I hope people remember this, was Jimmy Shea, the skeleton. He came from a life, uh, a three generations of Olympians. And we were going to have his grandfather, his father, and himself all walk in during the Olympic ceremony, the opening ceremonies. And tragically, if you can remember, his grandfather, who was, I think, 90, 90, 91 at the time, died three weeks before the Games in a terrible automobile accident. And so Jimmy and his father still 
carried on and, and were part of our opening ceremonies. But certainly um, his story and meeting him and that many people probably didn't know, he had a picture of his grandfather in his helmet and he won the gold medal on behalf of the United States and I think on behalf of his grandfather that day. And uh, it was pretty, pretty amazing to see Jimmy Shea win that gold medal and carry on the Olympic legacy of three generations of Shea family members. That's a really, really fantastic story. Excuse me. I hadn't uh, thought of that one for a long time. I do remember it. Uh, um, So thank you for bringing it back to the front of mind for me. I know that you came prepared and you've got some notes. Uh, um, I want to make sure that you can get to those stories before I, before I wrap us up and cut you off. So what, what else have you got Mm -hmm. there on the the list there, Caroline, that you would like to share? Sure. Um, Well, I briefly touched on it already. Mike Urozioni, what an incredible human being and just the whole um, miracle on the ice team from the 1980 Olympics that after all that work of um, all the years leading up to the games, I'm sure each one of us who were in that arena that night got goosebumps seeing the flame lit. Um, on a funnier side, I was going to share with you the um, <laughs> Mitt used to eat McDonald's, only McDonald's hamburgers and just the plain hamburger, not the Big Macs. And McDonald's, as you know, was a big sponsor. And even when we went to Moscow once to meet with um, Putin and uh, it was an IOC meeting in Moscow, he's still like, he go, let's go eat at McDonald's. I probably shouldn't share this story. But one day I was pulling into the garage and um, off in the corner, I saw this man that looked like Mitt eating like in his little, in the front seat of his car. And I remember walking over and tap, tap, tap on the window and said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm starving. And I knew that if I took it upstairs, everyone would be asking me questions and I'd get busy. I wouldn't have time to eat. So he was sitting there literally eating a pl- just a single hamburger in the garage of the building all by himself just to get a bite to eat before he got harangued with a bunch of phone calls. That's so funny. Sounds like him say, though, yeah, right? Well, yeah. Um, I have to say, <laughs> I do have a weakness for McDonald's overseas for whatever reason i never eat it here uh-huh but if i go overseas at least once wherever i'm at in whatever city it is if there's a mcdonald's there i have to go i have to go try it i i hear you buddy when i was a kid growing up this is before they were on every street corner um it would be a treat to drive into a big city and find a McDonald's and have a, this is, you know, when I was living overseas and, and find a McDonald's and have an American hamburger. So it's funny how we, it gives that comfort filled is still comfort food to this day. Although I have to say when our kids were younger, uh, one summer we took them to Europe and we went into a McDonald's in Switzerland and they had a nine piece chicken McNuggets. And my son was like, why are they so cheap in Europe? It should be 10 pieces. Why do we have a nine piece chicken McNuggets? It should be 10 pieces. Okay, Caroline, um, this has been, it's been a real joy. Thank you so much for, for taking your time to Mm -hmm. share your stories with us. Uh, before we conclude, we do have some assignments. I have them. I have my sentence done. I never doubted for a second. Thank you. 
first assignment. Still, still looking for that gold star. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you get enough of those and you get a, a pin, you know, or something, Yay. right? Okay, the first assignment is about music. Is there a particular song that you hear, or it could be several songs or a particular group, an artist uh, that you hear today? And whenever you hear it, it takes you right back to Salt Lake 2002. There are too many to list. I've heard several of your guests talk about Bare Naked Ladies and uh, of course, Light the Fire Within from Aretha Franklin is one that really resonates with me and with her recent passing. I think it just elevates to the top. An, an excellent choice. We can't put it on the Spotify playlist because it's not on Spotify, but people- I know. Uh, uh, Saw that. Yeah. But I did one other I was going to mention. Did you the um, in the closing ceremonies? Willie Nelson sang uh, "Bridge Over Troubled Water." Yes, it's beautiful, and we haven't actually aired the episode yet. But uh, yeah, we had a guest that actually made reference Talked to about that. Yeah, Nelson's "Bridge Over Troubled Water," and so it's on the playlist as well. Good, good. Yeah, it's a great rendition. Okay, food. A uh, particular restaurant that you like to frequent when you were working there at Slock? So I'm going to share my not-so-healthy. Crown Burger was great to run to. And I, it's, it's still there in Salt Lake today. They had Oh, it is. There are burger. several oh. locations. And I'm a huge fan of Crown Burger. So that's, that's, that's terrible to say. And then um, I have to say any of the Deer Valley restaurants, the Deer Valley Turkey Chili is something I've tried to make home here at home in California just to try and replicate it, but it never quite tastes as good as it does at Deer Valley. Well, we've got both ends. We've got the, we've got the burger joint and we've got the very posh uh, Deer Valley. So, so we're <laughs> definitely me. covering That's the bases. Yeah, there you go. And uh, our final question for you, you've shared so many beautiful Olympic moments, but uh um, what would you consider to be your goosebump moment? You asked me about a goosebump moment. And I think all of us who brought the world together just six months after 9-11 knew somehow that we had to bring that very tragic day into our opening ceremonies. I mean, it touched every citizen, every American, but certainly everyone involved in the games. And so the thought was uh, the collective minds who were putting on uh, the ceremonies thought that maybe during the Parade of Nations, you know how the host countries all come in and they're usually the last. Um, of course, you know that because you've done so many events. Um, we decided that it would come in at the very end after the parade of athletes with eight Americans carrying the flag. And uh, we were fortunate to get the the actual flag that had flown on the North Tower of the World Trade Center that day and had been recovered from the rubble of Ground Zero. So this had very, very significant. Um, very significant memory. I mean, just it meant it represented what that day uh, and all those lives who were lost that day. Anyway, what was surprising to us is when we told the IOC of our plans, they said no. Yeah, the IOC said no. They were very concerned about it appearing as a nationalistic sentiment. And this comes back to the days of, I guess, Hitler in the 1930s, where they didn't want the Olympics to be a national movement. They really wanted it to be, you know, a celebration of sport. So I remember running into Mitt's desk and office and all stressed out. And it's like, oh my God, the media is going to have a frenzy with this. I mean, because everyone loved the idea and the concept. And we'd already sort of shared, hey, guess what? We're going to have the World Trade Center flag be part of our opening ceremonies. I mean, I still get goosebumps thinking of it. 
So this is all happening just two days before the uh, opening ceremony. So you can imagine the tension that was going on and uh, 48 hours ahead of time. So Mitt is, as Mitt does, um, stood up for what was right and said he respectfully disagreed and that this was a world tragedy, not one of national pride. So believe it or not, now we're 24 hours from the start of the games. Emotions were running high on all ends. And um, we were trying to brainstorm. There's a special meeting called in the IOC and we're trying to brainstorm. What can we do? And should we host the flag? Well, the, the flag was too fragile to put up on the, um, the flagpole. And so, you know, crisis was upon us. And believe it or not, Jacques Rogue, the incoming president of the IOC, thought, well, maybe if it wasn't part of the Parade of Nations, but was part of this general opening ceremony, we would do that. And so crisis averted. And to answer your question, the most impactful goosebump moment for me was clearly when that flag came in before the Parade of Nations and eight athletes carried it in. And it was an electrifying moment that uh, that very special the entire stadium went quiet and um, this wind came through and you felt like the spirit of all those lost souls were with us celebrating peace and unity at that very special night on February 8th. Well, Caroline, thank you very much for sharing such a significant moment. It was mentioned by many people on this podcast as a magical, heartfelt, cathartic moment for them. So I really appreciate you also adding some additional context to it because I didn't know the backstory of it. And so I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, to think it almost didn't happen. I mentioned to the, I wanted to read something, but these people, this team were uh, the most passionate, the most committed, the most professional. Many of them are still close friends of mine. And as I mentioned to you, listening to the podcast, I felt like it had been yesterday when I, when I heard their voices and their stories. Um, this, the games, no doubt, were the best in my career. And I've worked at the United Nations. I've worked at, in the NBA. Uh, I have been in wine country. I mean, it's beautiful up here working in the wine industry and hospitality. But putting on the 2002 games were the best of my career. And if you'll just indulge me, I recently reached out to Mitt Romney. And um, I thought I'd just read this quick email, if you will indulge me. I wrote, hi, Mitt. Reading your name in the paper or seeing you on TV often evokes a sense of pride and fond memories of the Salt Lake Games. This week surpasses all those emotions. Seeing you walk side by side with the protesters and speaking out against racism and police brutality was indeed, in this very divided nation, of profiling courage. In my career, I have had 10 different bosses, people I reported to in varying, or, varying organizations, mostly good, one terrible, just one who I viewed as exceptional. That was you. You are our front row to leadership, and I want to thank you for still lighting the fire within. Caroline. Well, that's beautiful, and it perfectly encapsulates it. You're right. We are a nation divided and and people have a wide range of opinions about Mitt. But talking with our friends and colleagues in the Salt Lake Organizing Committee, every single one of them 
sing his praises and think that he was really the model, the model leader. I did. So the goosebump was clear the 9-11 flag, but the resonating for the rest of my life was the people of the 2002 games and those who put them on, the people who volunteered and the people I got to work with side by side every day. That is uh, perfectly said. Caroline, thank you so much for sharing very touching, heartfelt, interesting, and insightful stories. I really, really appreciate it. If people want to um, reconnect with you through social media or other means, learn more about the things that you're doing with your nonprofit or other things, um, what's the best way for them to do so? I would love to reconnect with anyone. Um, You can find me on LinkedIn easily. Just type in Caroline Shaw and the 2002 Games. Or my personal email is caroline-shaw at comcast.net. All right. Fantastic. Caroline, again, thank you so much. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. Caroline, thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to speak with you this afternoon.